Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Monday, March the 7th. 2022, one of those Mondays you wake up after a long weekend and there is profound disorder in the world. I think if you'd gone to bed about a month ago and you woke up now, you probably would go straight back to bed. Um, all the headlines, of course, about Ukraine, about the new wave, according to the New York Times, of Russian attacks, a lot of very, very troubling, heartbreaking humanitarian stories. But there's another kind of disorder going on. Um, the war in the Ukraine um, seems to have dramatically affected the world economy outside that part of the world. Uh, energy prices are, to, to use a financial times term, rallying. I'm not sure if they mean that in a euphemistic way. There are probably other ways of putting it. And the U.S. Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, is pointing to an oil embargo, according to Bloomberg. I heard him on the Sunday shows yesterday. He's rather soft-spoken, but I think he carries a, a big stick, and it, it seems almost inevitable that there's going to be a Russian oil embargo. Gas prices in the United States are really climbing, according to the New York Times, above $4 a gallon. I mean, they were way above $4 a gallon where I am in San Francisco. They're now almost at 6 It's astonishing. Um, and according to the FT, prices may still climb. Um so much uncertainty, so much disorder in the world. Uh, all these Russian tankers on the scene, no one knows where the oil is going to go. Uh, Daniel Jurgen, one of the world's leading energy thinkers, uh, suggests that we're on the brink of an, an energy crisis rivaling the 1970s. Daniel was actually on the show about three weeks ago, and we were talking on the brink of the Ukrainian crisis. Uh, someone else who was on uh, my show uh, not three weeks ago, but a, a year or two ago, was the very distinguished Cambridge University political economist, Helen Thompson, who, um, when we talked back then, was talking about how a blank check was going to run out for our economy. Uh, Helen, perhaps in her dark, erudite way, was suggesting we were on the verge of one kind of catastrophe or another. She's put all those ideas now into a book, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. And, uh, of course, the book was not designed to come out in the midst of the Ukrainian crisis, but it's uh, almost eerily prescient, I think, uh, Helen's new book in terms of the energy crisis. It's also prescient um, in the sense that she suggests in some ways in this book that we're returning to the 1970s. Uh, fortunately, we don't have to go back to the 1970s to talk to Helen. She is in her home in South London. Last time she had problems with Wi-Fi, 1970s style problems. Uh, we're in the 2020s now with Helen. Um, Helen, welcome and congratulations on this amazing new book. I mean, you're just about the most erudite political economist in the world. You put a lot of stuff into here. But uh, I've been listening to your podcast for years as well. And I've always thought of you as the 1970s lady. You seem to have a particular peculiar fascination with the 70s. Is that fair? Yeah, I think it, it, it probably is. I mean, I was a child 
of the 1970s. I was born in 1967. I can remember quite a lot politically from reasonably early on, in part, I think, because of the fact that in the winter of 1974, everybody in Britain was plunged into darkness most nights um, during um, a miners' strike. And so I think that the 70s has ha had an impact on me because it's personal experience. But at the same time, I think that by the time I started a bit more, you know, obviously as an adult, thinking a bit more seriously um, about politics and my childish um, impressions, I had a very strong sense that the 70s was a, was a decade which an awful lot changed, that it was the end of one era and the beginning of uh, another, and I couldn't really remember the era that had come um, before. Um, but I think in some sense it's a, let's just call it a, a happy coincidence that I have some personal interest in sort of seeing the 1970s in that way, perhaps, and that I actually think that objectively the world did profoundly change in that decade and we're still living with the consequences. Do you agree with, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Daniel uh, Jürgen, do you believe we are on the brink of a return to the 70s energy crisis as a consequence of geopolitical tensions and upheavals? Um, and, and perhaps as a second piece of that question, um, is the disorder that you write about, uh, hard times in the 21st century, is it a different kind of disorder from the 1970s? Are the hard times that you're predicting in the 21st century different from those hard times in the 70s? I was around in London in the 70s too, where we all sat at home in candlelight. It wasn't that hard. I mean, you just put the candles on. For kids, it was actually a lot of fun. Oh, I entirely agree. As a kid, I thought it was very exciting uh, in that re respect. I actually think it's actually a lot tougher than the, uh, the, than the 1970s. I think that the, the fundamental thing that happened in the 1970s was a geopolitical shock or a set of geopolitical shocks would perhaps be a better way of describing it, that the United States was no longer going to be the world's largest oil producer. It was on a journey trajectory to become the world's largest oil importer. Um, Britain was about to leave the or was leaving um, its position in, in the Persian Gulf. Um, um, it was retreating from what was called east of um, Suez. And the Arab countries in Iran were going to become a lot, lot more consequential in the in the geopolitics of energy. I think that everything that happens in the 70s where energy is concerned can be explained in geopolitical terms. And I think that the, the disruption, if you leave aside the question of the coal strikes in, in Britain, um, was primarily arising where energy was concerned in relation to um, oil even though it was tied to the, the changes in the monetary and financial, um, international monetary and financial system. The difference this time um, round is, is that there is a definite, I think, supply side shortage um, where oil and gas um, are concerned and potentially possibly coal as well. And that has come, leaving aside the geopolitics for, for the moment, from the big change in Asian demand and general and Chinese demand in particular for oil and gas. We saw get an oil shock from China, an oil demand shock from China in the 2000s. With the last 18 months or so, I think we're seeing a real um, gas shock. And all this is happening at the same time in which many governments across the world, all the Western governments are trying to um, move um, to conduct an energy transition. 
that's nothing like the 1970s. Obviously, there was some hope being placed in nuclear power, but there wasn't the idea that we were going to turn upside down the entire energy basis of our material civilization, which is what we're um, engaging in, or at least supposedly engaging in um, at the moment. And on top of these problems, issues, let's just call them, is we have got geopolitical shocks coming in, and they didn't just start with the Russia problem in the last um, few weeks. They also coming out of out of the Middle East as well. Uh, we did a show uh, last week with young uh, political scientist from Tufts University, Chris Miller. He's written a book on Putinomics. Um, back in the seventies, of course, there was no Putinomics, and maybe you can clarify this. I'm not sure exactly what the Soviets did with all their oil, but they certainly didn't export it. How central is today's disorder? Were, uh, the, the disorder which is defining the world bound up in the the post-Soviet economics of, of what Miller at least called Putinomics, the export of, of, of Russian energy uh, and, and creating a kind of kleptocracy, although maybe you wouldn't agree with that. Well, I think it is a kleptocracy. Right? The Soviets were exporting um, oil from the 60s and gas from the, the 1970s, and it's a pretty crucial source of revenue for them. I don't think it would have been possible for the Soviet state to have kept going as long as it did without them. And when oil prices crashed in the in 1986, is that played a pretty important part in, at the very least, accelerating the end of the, the Soviet um, Union? I think that the, what's different about the way in which Putin has gone about things. Um, so really from the pretty much from the time that he came to power in um, December 1999, is that he's been a lot more strategic about the transportation, the transit of Russian oil, but particularly Russian gas. So whilst during the Soviet period, the Soviet Union agreed with various European countries to build pipelines, um, most consequentially, um, the ones that came into um, that supplied um, gas to West Germany and those pipelines went through Ukraine, which obviously was then part of, of the, the Soviet Union. Uh, and they just regarded that as the simplest way of, of doing what they wanted to do, which was to sell gas. Whereas from Putin, right from the start, has basically thought strategically about these pipelines. He's wanted to cut Ukraine out of the transit system. In order to do that, he encouraged the building of pipelines, not only under the Baltic Sea, the Nord Stream pipelines, but under the Black Sea um, as well. He wasn't entirely successful in cutting Ukraine out, but he certainly very significantly reduced the amount of gas that was going through um, Ukraine. And he's understood that, it, that this is a European weakness and he's been willing to play the European countries um, off um, against each other and against each other. Uh, and when, for instance, the Obama administration played a pretty significant part in bringing one of these pipelines south stream, which was going under the Black Sea to Bulgaria um, to an end, he just found some new European partners incorporated with Turkey. And instead, we got Turk stream instead of south stream. So Putin's been a lot more systematic and strategic. So he's, he's, uh, I mean, he's portrayed, particularly amongst Republicans in the United States, I'm sure, as you know, as some crazy dictator, the next version of Adolf Hitler, but you're suggesting he's a lot more coherent and rational. You had an interesting piece in the New Statesman, which was taken out of a piece of the book recently, Helen, about uh, the rivalry between the United States, uh, sorry, between the, the, the European Union, which wants to be a superpower, 
and Russia. Is the essence of, do you think, of what's happening in Ukraine um, about this new Russian-EU rivalry? We had Peter Pomerantz on the show, Pomerantsev on the show, cultural critic of Russia, uh, over the weekend suggesting that the Ukraine isn't really about the Ukraine. You're a political economist. You always get to what something is really about. Is it really about this new EU-Russian rivalry? I think this is a really difficult question, Andrew. I mean, I that's think why I'm that, asking it. You're the only person who can answer it. I think that um, it's partly about the EU. Uh, I think that it certainly was about the European Union back in 2014 during the Crimea um, crisis, uh, and the fact that um, the, the European Union was offering what was effectively associate membership of the European Union. Um, to um, Ukraine uh, and really, in some sense, asking Ukraine to end any kind of real economic engagement with um, Russia. But I don't think that we can necessarily read off what Putin's motives were in 2014 uh, to, to, to what he's done in the, in the last few um, weeks. I mean, I don't pretend for one moment to be a Putin observer in this sense. I tend to think about, try to think things about sort of long structural history, um, if you like. But one of the things that's really struck me in the last few weeks is that even those people who both outside um, Russia and inside Russia might have some sympathy with some of Russia's, shall we say, frustrations with Western policy, regardless of the moment about whether those frustrations so are... sort of Mearsheimer realist school... Yeah, but I wasn't I mean, just thinking about people like Mirsham. I was thinking about people inside um, Russia itself, uh, and they seem quite genuinely shocked by what has um, happened. They expected, I think, some kind of action in around the, the Donbass region and perhaps establishing a, a land connection from Russia to um, Crimea, um, but not what Putin has actually um, what what Putin has actually gone in gone for. And although it's not my you know, area at all, um, I don't think in some sense the religious aspects of this should be uh, underplayed. Um, going back to like 2018, it was pretty clear there was a schism developing between the um, Moscow Orthodox Church and the, and the Ukrainian. Um, and, and, that, think, and you mean that literally a schism? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to press too hard on the details um, of, um, of that. But what I'm saying is, is I think that a lot of things came to a, a head in terms of the idea that Ukraine was making a decisive break um, from um, Russia. And we shouldn't straightforwardly underestimate the military aspects of it. Of course, it was very clear that, that um, Ukraine was never going to join NATO, but that didn't stop a number of NATO countries um, providing Ukraine with significant defensive weapons. And that's clearly also something that Putin found objectionable. But how all this fitted together in, in, in Putin's mindset to make him reach the judgment that he did to order a full-scale invasion with clearly the intention of regime change in, 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 in Ukraine, that, that, that's, that's, that's to me an unknowable question to answer. Helen, as I said, I, I've always enjoyed listening to you on Talking Politics because you seem to... Uh, in contrast with so many other people on the internet, get beyond morality. Um, not that you ignore it, but you seem to 
be able to vault over it in some ways. Um, we've had a lot of shows recently about the morality of the Ukrainian war. We had a couple of East European, Central uh, East European academics from the Central European University on the show uh, recently talking about the moral failure um, of uh, the West in terms of the Ukrainian uh, invasion. You had an interesting piece uh, in the new uh, in the in the New Statesman uh, from earlier this uh, in, last month in February, um, talking about Ukraine's imagined European identity being uh, uh, not being uh, reconcilable with the political reality. Do you think that we in the West have tended to um, romanticize Ukraine and this Ukrainian struggle against Russia? Well, I should say that the imagined uh, identity wasn't my choice of the headline. I didn't use the term in the in the in in, in the text. My point was is that there's a, a strong idea of Ukrainian nationhood, and that that idea of Ukrainian nationhood, or central to that idea of Ukrainian nationhood, is the idea that Ukraine is a European country. Um, Whatever that means, right? You could argue whatever that means, but I think at, at, at some sense, the people who identify as Ukrainians identify as, as, as Europeans um, too. And my point in that article was really to say, look, the European Union is very keen um, of, on encouraging the idea of the peoples of Europe being European. It's necessary for the European project that they do in some sense feel um, that they are um, European and it was keen um, to encourage that idea that to be European meant to be in the European Union. And I think that's quite a problematic idea in quite a number of ways, not only just for um, Ukraine. But I think that what's actually morally irresponsible um, of the European Union and, and I think the bits of NATO that have encouraged ideas that that Ukraine was going to join NATO is to say is to encourage the idea that this is going to happen without a really serious reckoning about what that entails in terms of confrontation with um, Russia. So I, th I think in some sense it, it's not Ukrainian nationalism that's romanticized here it's European identity that's uh, romanticized and it's not that you can't have European identity quite the contrary but if European identity is going to have some political manifestation in this continent of Europe in which Russia is part part because Russia is a European country as well as an Asian country then the Russian question has to be reckoned with it's no good just talking nice language about us all feeling feeling um, European and that means we should all be in the all peoples of Europe should be in the European um, union without understanding what that politically entails and where Ukraine's concerned it was always going to involve a reckoning with Russia. Enough Ukraine. Uh, Helen's new book Disorder Hard Times in the 21st Century isn't really about Ukraine but of course it's very hard to think before or beyond Ukraine at the moment. So we're going to take a break Helen uh, now and then after the break I want to talk about the broader themes in Disorder, the politics, your analysis of the United States and how we're supposed to make those hard times less hard. So stay with us, everyone. We'll be back in about 60 seconds with the great Helen Thompson, author of Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. 
I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back with Helen Thompson, the author of Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, her new book, which is just out. Um, the, uh, the book, Helen, is broken down into three sections. Geopolitics, we talked a little bit about that. Uh, economy, you're a professor of economics. I want to come back to China and democratic politics. Um, I want to talk politics for a moment. You are one of the co-hosts of the, or were the Talking Politics podcast, which is now finished, much uh, mourned, an excellent podcast. You're a political economist. Do you struggle to talk about politics? Helen, do you find politics somewhat foreign? <laughs> I, I hope not. I, mean, I, I actually like politics as politics um, a great deal. But how do I, you come to politics as a political economist when you're when you're making sense of these much seemingly deeper structural shifts in economics which most people who are interested in politics barely acknowledge let alone understand yeah i mean i think that i think it would be a little bit simplistic to say that i have a a citizen hat on and a an analyst hat on um, because that would assume that you could just keep the two entirely compartmentalized and I think it would be an illusion to think that you um, can um, but what I'm always I guess trying to do when I'm being a political economist a scholar of politics is is to try to get distance um, is to try to stand back and try to look at things through long time now that doesn't mean that the explanation of what's going on in politics always lies there. I, I think that contingency does actually matter um, a great deal. I think that the, particularly in certain circumstances, the political judgment of individual um, leaders does make a difference uh, in in, in, what, in in what what happens. But I think the trick is to try to, to is to try to sort of work out 
the ways in which the the long structural the deep structural forces are interacting are interacting with those um, political um, contingencies. You had an, another interesting piece from the book uh, on what you call or what the new new statesman editors call the age of plutocracy. We've done a lot of shows about this. Davos man, many others. Is do you think? Our shift towards plutocracy since the 70s, is that amongst the most important things that has happened over the last 50 years? Yeah, I think that it is pretty important in understanding the ways in which individual democracies, Western individual Western democracies have developed. And I think it's pretty important in understanding how the, the European Union um, has um, developed. And in some sense, that I think that what happened in the middle of the 2010s and obviously 2016 is usually taken as the epicenter of that because of, of Brexit and Trump were in a different ways, a sort of reckoning um, with that age of um, plutocracy. Now, obviously, particularly in the case of the United States, there's lots of sort of complexities and ironies um, to that because Donald Trump was hardly somebody who was outside um, the wealthy class in the in the um, in the United States, uh, and if you look at it in the British case, I think that there are certain contingencies to the way in things way in which things played out with Brexit. But the fact that a referendum in the end determined um, that Britain was going to leave the um, European Union. I mean, I know it was had in some sense ultimately still depended on the on the general election, but the the context of the general election came from the initial um, referendum. That was quite, I think, a momentous moment in democratic um, politics because clearly the large majority of the people who led um, Britain uh, as the political class, supported by much of the business um, class, wanted the United Kingdom to stay in the European Union. And, and, the, and the voters said, no, that's or the majority of voters said, that's not what we um that's not what we want, what, what we want. And so I think that you can't really understand how that moment came about without understanding the ways in which democratic politics had been in a number of ways hollowed out in Britain since the 1970s. And one part of that story, not the only part of that story, would be what happened to the British economy and who was who was but it's who not was just uh, Britain it, it's everywhere I mean it's particularly the United States I mean the standard progressive narrative Helen uh, uses the word neoliberalism I know you're ambivalent about that word to suggest that back in the 60s there was the great society the New Deal Kennedy Johnson FDR Harold Wilson National Health Service blah 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 and then along came Mrs. Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and Milton Friedman, and they basically ruined the world with their fetishization of the market, um, and they restructured everything, and now we are dealing with the consequences, particularly when it comes to this rise of plutocracy. Do you buy that narrative, or is it too simplistic? No, I think, it's, I think it is too simplistic. I mean, clearly, going back to what you asked me to begin with, some really significant changes happened in the in the 1970s, probably in economic terms, the most significant of which um, was the beginnings of what gets called financial liberalisation, the beginnings of removing controls on capital so that particularly... But you don't use term, the word, you don't like the term neoliberal, right? You think it's 
No, um, the reason why I don't like the term neoliberal, I mean, there's a several, but the main, most important reason why I don't like the term neoliberal is, is because I think that particularly when it was first deployed, it was used to suggest there was a big ideological turn in the 1970s away from the state towards markets and that it was driven by ideas. It was driven by the fact that the ideas of people like Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek were having influence over people like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and the people who um, advised um, them. But the big problems in the 1970s were coming from energy. They were coming from the energy shocks um, and the breakdown of the monetary, the international monetary order of the Bretton Woods monetary system. And these were much more like practical problems. And if you take someone like Milton Friedman, you know, he was obviously taken in some sense as a kind of godfather of neoliberalism. Sure, he wanted the state to do less and he wanted markets to do more. But a lot of his arguments were focused on the question of energy regulation and wanting the energy controls that the federal government in the United States had put on removed because he thought that, that they removing those controls and allowing prices to rise were, was, were necessary conditions of dealing with the um, energy um, crisis. So even if you take the argument of a man like Milton Friedman and say, what was he actually most concerned about? It seems a great deal to me of what he was concerned about was actually the energy question rather than sort of intellectual questions about the balance between states and markets. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't have opinions on that subject, but why were his ideas consequential? I think it was because of the economic, practical economic problems that were thrown up during the 1970s. What, what do you make of progressives who, who make the argument that we just simply need to go back to the great society? We need to go back to the welfare system uh, and we can copy the Danes or the, or the Swedes or even the Germans, the, the Anglo-American model doesn't work anymore, what they call neoliberalism. Is that too simplistic? Can we return in history, Helen? The political economists um, believe that we can wind the clock back? Well, there's quite a lot of things I don't think that we can wind the clock back um, to the, the 1970s because at this point in which the junctures that we're talking well, about... Well, even before were, the 70s, before... Back, back to the 60s or the 40s? Well, there's two different things um, here. Is, is it, Can we recreate the, the geopolitical and international economic conditions that prevailed in the 1930s and the 1950s? I think the you answer probably don't that, want to do the 30s. Right? Is, that, is emphatically no. Um, and um, I think that aside from any other consideration, and this is why the latter part of the 70s is important, this was a world um, in which China... Um, had become economically irrelevant uh, and we're not going back to that um, well this was a, an interlude in some sense for um, western countries and the european western countries still had their empires or at least the ones that were imperial still had their um, empires britain didn't you know give up being an imperial power until the beginning of the 1970s when it withdrew from east of Suez, and that had consequences for the ability of western countries to protect their energy interests in the in the in the um in the Middle East. So I think that part of that nostalgia generally sort of dodges round the, it was still part, it was still a world in which uh, the British and the French still- Okay, I, I take that. And maybe we'll talk very briefly at the end about China. What about simply going back to the fiscal systems, raising taxes, reinvesting in the health system, um, punishing in economic terms, uh, wealthy people. Can't we go back to that? 
I think that we can go back to having higher taxes in certain respects, yes, and I think it would be desirable in uh, in a number of ways. I think it's still a lot, lot more difficult to tax people's assets um, in a world, rich people's assets in a world in which capital flows um, so readily across the world economy than it was in a world in which capital controls existed. I think the thing that we are going back to um, it, albeit it's taking a, a different form, is a form of, if you like, economic nationalism and the idea that actually the international economy is a site of geopolitical conflict and that there has to be some kind of secure economic security um, for countries within it, economies within it. And then that means that it might not be the case that the best policies all the time is, is to pursue as much growth as possible by having as much international interaction as possible. I think we saw that quite clearly even before the pandemic in the way in which um, people in Washington got very understandably worried about the dependency of the United States on certain supply chains, including metal supply chains um, around China. We saw it in, during the pandemic itself in regard to um, pharmaceutical um, products and I think we're going to be seeing it again uh, in relation to food as a consequence um, of what's going on at the moment in terms of the, Russia and, and Ukraine given the importance of both of those um, countries um, to um, wheat um, exports. So I think the idea that actually that the nation the national state has to take some responsibility for the security of a national economy, I think that we are a bit heading back in that direction. What it will mean in terms so of... So a return fact. to a world of nation states in the 21st century. As I said, your book is broken up into three parts. The third part is on democratic politics. You deal in some detail in that section with America. To what extent is, Helen, our disordered world a consequence of American screw-ups of one kind. We've done so many on the war of Iraq, in, in Syria, in so many other places. Uh, what, uh, uh, to what extent is the disorder of 2022 rooted in both American economic, political decline and a retreat from its international, what some people see as obligations? I think a significant amount of the, the disruption of the 2000s of, um, and the 2010s did come out of American foreign policy in the Middle East and the disasters of American foreign policy um, in the Middle East. And that was true, I think, not only in relation to Iraq, but in relation to Syria too. In some ways, I think that the, the fallout from the, the Syrian civil war and the, the, the real incoherence of of Obama's policy um, in, in right. Syria. You, and if we're going to get moral there, we, we did a show with uh, Joby Warwick on Russia's Syria intervention as the model for the Ukrainian mm. war. Certainly we can't blame everything on Trump and Obama has a lot of moral responsibility for that. I mean, I think that it was a big, I, I mean, I've thought at the time, I think I said it on Talking Politics any number of times at uh, a certain um, point, if you look at what had happened um, by the end, uh, or let's just say like by 2000 and 15 in Obama's Middle Eastern um, policy, there was a caliphate um, going across parts of Syria and Iraq and Libya. And by September of 2015, the Russians had returned as a significant military power in the Middle East for the first time um, since the, the 1970s. And Iraq was in pretty much in a, a state of chaos. Um, the US-Saudi relationship was a mess because of the um, fallout of the shale oil um, boom for 
uh, in terms of Saudi Arabia having a new um, competitor. I think you couldn't look at Obama's foreign policy in the Middle East and say it was anything other than disastrous. Now, I'm not saying that at all the points along the way, you can see a, a clearly coherent other option that could have been um, taken. But I simply think the way in which Russian power had come back in the Middle East and the fact that Russia actually had probably better relations with a whole range of, of, of Middle Eastern countries, some of which were on very different sides in the Syrian um, civil war than the United States did um, by the time that the US presidential election took place in 2016 was quite revealing. Helen, how does a political economist make sense of the crisis of democracy in America, particularly it would seem in the Republican Party? I know you spend some time in the book talking about that too. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the story of what's gone on in American democratic politics in its own terms, so leaving the foreign policy side um, out of it, you know, is is pretty is quite complicated. I think it also like has a when long... you when you say complicated, does that mean you don't know the answer? No, I don't mean. I just what I mean is, is I think there's a lot. I mean, it's multi-causal when I say it's complicated. Is, well, give is me that, a couple I, of causes. Well, I, th- Three, I think the, 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 the one of the things that happened in the in 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 the United States, like everywhere else, was the, the you know the rise of plutocratic um, politics. But I think that the, the difference the, um, compared to what happened in, in Europe was is that as the United States was dealing with the rise of plutocratic politics, it was also um, dealing with the the fallout um, of the civil rights successes on America's party um, system. It was dealing with the consequences for, uh, particularly perhaps in the end for the Democratic Party of the 1965 um, Immigration Act, the rise of um, non-authorized migration, uh, the border issues. All these things were not part of Europe's politics um, during the, the during the 1990s, 2000s, and the 2010s, but they're very much part of America's um, politics. And I think one of the things that Donald Trump was able to do, perhaps particularly actually as a candidate for the Republican nomination, rather than during the, the general election itself, was to sort of tie together a, a whole set of these fault lines and tell a kind of very simplifying story about why it was all going wrong. But he was able to tie the issue of the border to the issue of campaign finance, to the issue of plutocracy to the failure in the uh, in the um, in the Middle East and I say it doesn't I don't mean to say by any of this that he was telling a convincing story about how all these things fitted together but that he was able to use them in order to say that the average American as he put it was being you know essentially screwed over by American elite although I'm not sure if that explains Trump's disdain for the democratic system. That's another issue, isn't it? That's another issue. I mean, I think that what became clear is, is that if you put somebody like Donald Trump um, anywhere near um, power, um, power, as we know, corrupts, but it certainly corrupts a personality like Donald Trump's, I would say, even... I even, think he was pretty corrupt in the first place. Even more. Um, and that he didn't accept the, 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 the democratic rules of the game and that if you lose an election that you, um, that you, have, to, to, you, you, you have to walk away. One thing uh, that uh, Helen, that uh, Trump repeated that was central to his way of thinking was China. Um, In your book, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, of course, China plays an important role. Could we argue that we're just at a transition, transitional moment from the shift in power from a European American world to a Chinese Asian world and that this always happens in these transitional moments? 
Yeah, I think that the story of China's rise and its geopolitical implications um, is, well, you're not going to like me saying this, but is more complicated than that. And I don't actually mean this time in a, in a multi-causal sense. What I mean is, is that I think the story of the, the rise of Chinese power and the fall of American power is overdone. Um, I think if we just look at it on the United States side for a moment, if we look at the period since the, the, the crash of 2008, sure, American military power has declined, particularly in the in the Middle East, but American energy power increased very considerably. America, um, because America, the United States became the world's largest oil and gas producer. American financial power increased very considerably after 2008 in the way in which the Federal Reserve became an international lender of last resort and who the Federal Reserve was willing to act in that role too became extremely consequential. The decisions the Federal Reserve made about monetary policy had profound consequences for other economies, including China. China had a financial crisis in 2015-16 in the wake of the Fed's um, monetary um, decision making. I think actually that if we look at it from the China side now, is, is that in the 2010s, actually, the world economy was as much made by China's weakness as it was by China's strength. I'm not trying to underplay that the strengths um, there. Um, but China's financial problems, um, say particularly in 2015, um, 16, the fact that it withdrew effectively from the investment drive that it had pushed into Europe in the first years after the, the crash, that caused all kinds of divisions within the in the European Union. It divided the German and the French from 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 various southern eastern and southern southeastern and east eastern European um, countries, um, and then. China's economic, the slowdown in China's economic growth had knock-on consequences in Germany. The German economy was effectively in recession in 2018. So I think a story which says is that the United States is simply becoming weaker and China is becoming more powerful just tries to teach, basically takes power as something that's a single variable rather than rather than dividing it up into different dimensions and then seeing how they interact with each other. It is indeed complicated. Helen, um... How does your football team, West Ham United, fit into all this? Well, um, you could argue that West Ham actually um, was an example of what happened to the West Ham in the 2000s, was an example of the, the plutocratic tendencies in, in, um, in British football. It was taken over for a while by some Icelandic bankers who then went bankrupt. And basically the club was on the verge of not existing, I think, for, um, a, for, for a, at a certain um Point. It's now got partly owned by a Czech um, billionaire. We get to see how that's going to um, play play out. I mean, the good thing it has to be said is is that West Ham have a manager at the moment who's very old school, David Moyes. He's a sort of he was in some sense Alex Ferguson's protege, though it didn't work out for him when he was Manchester United um, manager. So it's an interesting juxtaposition between the world of of, of um, let's not call it high finance, but sort of anyway high finance and football in the Premier League. And, and a manager that's trying to do things in quite an old-fashioned way, and whether he succeeds or not, um, we, well, we, we'll have to see. Well, as Helen would say, it's complicated everything about the world, according to Helen, which makes her such a valuable contributor in a world where everyone seems to simplify everything. Uh, Helen's new book, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, is just out. Congratulations, Helen, on the book. Thank you um, very much. What else should people be reading in um, in March 2022 to make sense of our complicated world? What are you reading these days, in addition to your own work? 
Um, to be honest, <laughs> I've got so much to do at the moment that I'm reading. Uh, I'm reading very little other than what I read on on, on the um, the web. Um, there's a great book that I do want to read, though. Oh, I'm told it's a great book, and I have every reason to believe this by Nicholas Mulder about the history of sanctions as a as a weapon. And I'm very interested in reading this because what we are doing, I think, or what the West is doing with sanctions at the moment in regard to Russia is pretty unprecedented. In the sense, yeah, we had um, we had uh, the, another economist, Thomas Sedlacek, on the show, the Czech economist, mm-hmm. author of The Economics of Good and Evil a week ago, and he talked about waging war with sanctions. I assume you don't, or, or waging war, you know, using sanctions as if we were waging war. I assume you don't really believe that's possible. Well, in a way that I think that it is. I mean, I think that the question that's hanging over it is, is what do you do if you, like, use sanctions to declare economic war? And I, I, I would put caveats in instantly about the fact that there's not much impact on energy, Russian energy at the moment, but if we just put for a moment aside that issue, what do you do if you're really waging economic war against a country that has nuclear weapons? That hasn't really been tried before. That's what seems to me to take us into quite unprecedented territory here. Well, we are certainly in unprecedented territory, but uh, I think Helen's new book, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, makes sense of it as much as anything that's being written these days. Thank you, Helen. Uh, finally, uh, Helen Thompson, the uh, author of Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. Helen, um, who who's in charge? Who runs the world? I think the answer to that is nobody. Uh, uh, in some sense, I think if, if we just look at it that as a geopolitical um, question for the the moment, for a moment anyway, is is that the reason why nobody runs the world is goes back to the fact that America which is in some sense the country that has run the world geopolitically, its power is both rising in some areas and it's falling in um, other areas. And this is happening at the same time um, as the United States is, like many other countries, committed to this energy um, revolution. And who could, who, who in some sense rules that world? That seems to me, it's a almost a like, a, even by the standards of the complexity that we've thus far been talking about, a really unfathomable, question because who of us could know who could know what they were doing in terms of trying to to move the world away from the entire material foundations of modern civilization i think answer nobody